We are continuing on our journey with Abraham as he grows in his understanding of God and his faith in him. We've been looking at the places where Abraham's faith is tested. In fact, we saw last week uh, when he failed the test as he went down to Egypt, lied about his wife being his sister, and put God's entire plan at risk. But the story doesn't end there. It continues because God is gracious and loving and forgiving and committed and knows exactly who Abraham is. And so where we see Abraham's faith picking up is that he goes back. He begins again. And that's where we pick up the story. But right on the heels of his restoration and repentance, right on the heels of his return to the promised land is another test. So let's read all of chapter 13 together, and then we'll talk. So Abraham went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and lot with him into the Negev. Now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver and in gold. And he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. And Lot, who went with Abraham, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. Then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me, between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, I will go to the right or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abraham settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. And the Lord said to Abraham, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are northward and southward and eastward and westward for all the land that you see I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring will also be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abraham moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. Let's pray. God, as your people, you've given us a different set of values. You've given us a different way to live. But we live those values, Lord, not just because they're right, 
but because you have proven yourself trustworthy, because we know that you are a good provider, that you are sovereign, that you are powerful, that you love us. And so that changes the way we treat the people around us. It changes the way we make decisions. And we pray this morning, Lord, that through the life of Abraham, you would give us insight into our own life, into the choices that lay before us, Lord. And I pray that we would be a people who let you choose your portion for us instead of being a people who takes for ourselves. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As the chapter opens, Abraham returns back to the land, and like I mentioned, he returns back to the last place he was in a good place with the Lord. This is repentance. He goes back to where he once was. He builds his tent at the last place where God spoke to him. He goes back to the altar where he had worshipped God. And most importantly, he goes back to the land of promise. Now, we're not told in this passage how the famine is going. right? We're not told if the famine that we encountered at the end of chapter 12 persists into this time. Clearly, Abram and Lot are having a hard time providing for all of their livestock. So maybe that's what the issue is. Um, but we are, not exact, uh, we are not specifically told what's going on, but nonetheless, Abram is back in the place where God has called him and where God has promised to give him uh, descendants and then give the land to his descendants. But a problem arises. As we see here, Abram has a lot of people journeying with him, and with those people, a lot of livestock Uh, In fact, he's a relatively wealthy individual. And his nephew, Lot, who traveled with him all the way from the beginning, is also a somewhat wealthy individual, and they're in a place where they're struggling to find enough to feed all of their livestock. And as it starts, it's not Abram and Lot who are fighting, it's all of their staff. It's all of their workers, the herdsmen, who are arguing and fighting for, you know, um, first grazing rights and things like this, and it's causing conflict in the tent. It's causing stress. And so here is the test. Here is a place where Abraham's uh, tested and challenged. But we don't really see anything in the circumstances happening except what we've talked about already. It seems like a relatively basic and normal happening. It's just fighting about resources, right? Cattle ranchers to these days have arguments like this, okay? When we talk about water resources and when we talk about these types of things, if you live with other people, you may argue about, you know, how many baths your roommate takes because of the water bill. This is effectively the same issue. But at the same time, I want you to notice how different this issue is from the last issue, okay? The last issue was a time of scarcity, It was a time of danger. But here, the problem is a problem of wealth. If Abraham didn't have so much, he wouldn't be in such a hard place, right? More cattle, more problems. That's the issue here, okay? In fact, it's the fact that Lot and Abraham have done so well in their lives that's causing conflict at all. And we forget this. We assume money makes everything better, and that is just literally never true, okay? 
There are ways and means and provisions and resources that can help things. But it also brings its own problems. It also brings its own stresses. And I warn you that oftentimes when we pray that God would give us more, we don't realize what that often entails. And so the test here for Abraham has to do with relationships versus resources. It has to do with rights versus the promise God has given. The difficulty here is caused, again, by the fact that they are both wealthy, and so they're having a hard time coexisting. And so how do you solve that problem? Abraham's right. He says in verse 8, Let there be no strife between you and me and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we're kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. He says, look, we've got to split up. We've got to franchise. We've got to break apart and give some distance so that there's room enough for the both of us. And he says, the land is big. The land is wide. Now, already I would suggest to you, we're seeing something significant in Abraham. First off, I want you to notice that the first thing he says is, let's not fight. I don't want there to be any strife between you and me. Now, that might seem obvious, but that's only because you're forgetting what it's like to be in a scarcity mindset, right? When things are rough, the first thing that happens in our brains is a take care of yourself first, right? We use the classic illustration that until I get in the boat, I can't reach out and pull anyone else into the boat, right? I've got to stop drowning myself, and then I can help others. And so generally, when there's infighting over resources, when we're struggling with the scarcity mentality, the first thing we think about is how to get resources, not Abraham. The first thing he thinks about is how to have a good relationship with my nephew. The first thing he thinks about is this fighting is not okay. Abraham is called to a blessed life, right? Genesis chapter 12, come out to a land that I will show you and I will bless you. But what does it look like to be blessed? You know, Jesus in the New Testament, he gives us the Sermon on the Mount and he opens it with what we often call the Beatitudes. But effectively what the Beatitudes are is a description in Jesus' mind of the people who live a blessed life. And they are controversial. They are surprising. They, many of them, are reversals of the things that seem obvious and natural. In other words, what I'm suggesting is if you filled out a survey before the Sermon on the Mount and said, all right, what do you think the most blessed people in life are? Your description would look different than Jesus'. All of our descriptions are. Blessed are those who are stable in their income. Blessed are those who have a house and a white picket fence, two and a half kids and a dog, right? When we think about the good life Effectively, we ask, who are blessed? But listen to Jesus' description here. And I would challenge you, especially if you're familiar with this passage, really listen. Listen with new ears this morning. Think through what Jesus is saying, not just as, you know, part of Scripture, but think through its implications. Think through what Jesus is saying when he says, these are the blessed ones. 
He opened his mouth and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Why are these categories of people blessed? Why is it the poor and the hungry? Why is it the peacekeeper and the persecuted? In every case, it's followed by a future tense statement. Blessed are the hungry, for they shall be filled. Blessed are those who weep, because they shall be comforted. In other words, it's the same thing we've been talking about for weeks. The blessings, the beatitudes of the Christian life as we follow Jesus are rooted in the future fulfillment of God's promises. We can enjoy life now in the midst of odd and awkward and difficult circumstances because God keeps his promises. If you remove that fact, if you take the Beatitudes and you strip them out of a world where there is a good and loving and faithful God, they don't work. They don't work at all. Now, to be honest, that's what the word blessing implies. When we say blessed, we assume, we presume, we state that someone is blessing us. Okay. So who does God give the good life to? That's what's being talked about here. And do you see how we see Abraham described in that list? Blessed are the peacemakers. Now I want to be clear here this morning because some of us are anti-conflict. And that makes us naturally peacekeepers. A peacekeeper is not the same thing as a peacemaker. Okay? A peacekeeper tries to quell conflict at any cost so that things are stasis. A peacemaker will stir up and make messy and fight to bring real peace. Okay? There's a difference. Peacemakers travel to conflict to disarm it to destroy it, to bring true reconciliation. Peacekeepers flee from conflict to keep their lives quiet. But here, Abraham cares more about Lot and his relationship with Lot than the problem at hand. He cares more about his, uh, his workers and Lot's workers getting along than he does about the resources he is a peacemaker. But again, put yourself in Abraham's shoes and realize what's at stake here. And you go, big deal, they have to separate. But notice what happens next. Look at verse 9. He says, is not the whole land before you? Even that shows that Abraham doesn't have a scarcity mindset, right? He says, there's plenty for us both. Almost always, scarcity is myopic, focused on one little area, especially in our relatively privileged American lives, 
when we're feeling like we've got to fight, like we've got to enter the rat race and make it work, almost always we've gone tunnel vision. We're only seeing the one thing right in front of us. But more importantly, notice what he says. He says, if you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. Do you see what he does here? He says, Lot, you choose. You make the choice. Now, there's a litany of reasons why this doesn't make any sense. For starters, remember that this is an ancient world context where age and genealogy creates a system, a hierarchy of honor. Lot is to respect, to honor, and to some degree even follow the marching orders of his older uncle Abraham. Okay? That's just the way the society works. Abraham is the patriarch of the family. He is the most important center of this whole group of people that he's living with. Every servant, every family member, their lives are oriented around the leadership, the decision-making, and the authority and power of Abram. And so what we would expect to happen here, what would be natural and normal is for Abraham to go, look, here's what's going to have to happen. The child can't survive if the mother dies, right? More scarcity language. So to protect the mother, you guys need to go and fend for yourself, at least until times get better. But there's more than that. Not only that, but in this operation, Abraham is the senior partner. This isn't just an ancient societal way of viewing life. It's also an incredibly modern one. They are working together. They are traveling together. Why is Lot in Canaan? Because Abraham is. Okay. He's the senior partner of this arrangement. That comes with rights, responsibilities, but it also comes with a little bit of privilege. First pick. That's just what you would expect. And here's another one. Even when we look at this from a spiritual context, Abraham's decision, we kind of balk at him. We go, wait, why are they in the land of Canaan? Did God say, I will give to Lot and Abraham the land of Canaan? No. To be honest, commentators have never figured out why Lot tags along. In fact, sometimes they criticize Abraham because he's supposed to separate from his family and he brings his nephew. But no matter how you view this, it doesn't change the fact that the inheritance of the land, the property, it's Abraham's and not Lot's. And so Abraham could have understandably come in and said, look, the whole reason we're here is because God wants to give me this land. You have no part or portion here. Go your way. He could have said, look, God is interested in me and my family. He's prioritized us. He says he will bless me. He didn't say anything about blessing Lot. You need to go make your own way in life. In fact, isn't that almost hard to understand? Now that we've laid this on the table, don't you go, wait a minute. Why in the world is Abraham so open-handed? He's got all, all of the cards. In every category, he could have said, it should be me that makes first choice. So why does he say, Lot, make the choice? Blessed are the peacemakers, one. 
We see that in Abraham. But we also see blessed are the meek. I don't know if we really understand meekness as a culture. Okay? And the reason I say that is just, when was the last time you used that word? Like literally, when I think of the word meek outside of the scriptures, I think of a mouse. And I don't know why, but just some small, helpless animal. Okay. Or maybe you think, scripture adjacent, of Jesus, meek and mild, right? Which seems to just mean that he never yelled. Okay. But here's what meekness actually is. Meekness is when you don't demand your rights. Meekness is when you don't take what you feel you deserve. Meekness isn't a limp wrist, but it is an open hand. Okay. Meekness doesn't say anything about your position in life, your power, or your authority, but it definitely says something about how you utilize all those things. I'll give you an example, a biblical one. David is identified as being the meekest man who ever lived. Where do we see David's meekness? God comes to David and he says, David, I'm done with Saul. Now you're king. He anoints him. He sends a prophet to anoint him and declares him king. And Saul, who's been prophetically deposed from the throne, is still sitting on the throne and he chases David around the country, trying to put him to death, trying to avoid the future. And twice, David gets the opportunity to kill Saul. Because Saul's not a good military general. He has nothing on David. And so David is just hiding, and even his hiding is better strategy than Saul's chasing. And so twice, he ends up in places where Saul is just completely vulnerable and he can take his life, and all of David's primary generals are going, David, this is a God-given opportunity. God wants you to be king. Saul is your enemy. He's the enemy of the king. And here he is, given into your hands. This is God's gift. And he says, I will not slay the Lord's anointed. He refuses to touch Saul. Have you ever thought about that phrase, I will not slay the Lord's anointed? Who is the Lord's anointed? David, but he does not use that as a justify, justification for taking the life of Saul. That's God's problem is effectively what David says. He'll take care of Saul. And this continues later in his life. One of David's sons, a man by the name of Absalom, decides he's tired of his dad being king and he'd make a better king. And so he rises up against his father in a big political charade, gets the people on his side, and David is at the palace, and Absalom crowns himself king. And David doesn't go, that's ridiculous, put him to death. He packs his bag and he leaves. He abdicates the throne. And he never says this specifically, but this, I would suggest to you, is the internal language of David's heart. God gave me this throne. He's capable of keeping it. He keeps his hands off. Moses is another character who's identified as being meek in the Old Testament. Moses is the leader, the miraculous staff wielder, right? The powerful Charlton Heston. And there's an occasion, and this is after the Exodus, 
after he's done so much for Israel, after he's provided for them for so long, there's an occasion where some come to Moses and they demand that they be leaders too. And they go, you know what, we're done with you. We want to go democratic. And it says that Moses fell on his face before the people. And if you keep reading the story, you find out why, because he goes, oh my gosh, what's about to happen? And he begins to pray for the people who are accusing him. That's meekness. As you can see, meekness and humility go hand in hand. But meekness is humility in action. It doesn't take for himself. So here, Abraham says, choose Lot, and I'll take the remainder. I'm not going to demand my rights as the patriarch. I'm not going to call first dibs as the senior partner. I'm not even going to give you biblical justification for why my needs matter more than yours. God takes care of me. So open-handedly, he says, choose, Lot. That's meekness. Blessed are the meek, Jesus says, for they shall inherit the earth. Do you realize how little sense that makes in the world that we live in? Who are the ones who own the earth? Those who fight for it, who flex their muscles, who demand their rights, who make themselves heard and known. So how is it that the meek will inherit the earth? Because it is their inheritance, and it will not be taken, it will be given. The only reason Abraham operates out of character here, the only reason he's capable of rising above self-interest, the only reason Abraham here open-handedly takes this problem and seeks a solution, even if it's not the best for him, is because he has learned that God will provide for him and he no longer needs to take care of himself. That's meekness. The question presented in this passage, the question for us this morning, is do you want the portion that you can take with your ingenuity and with your strength, demanding your rights, position, and privilege? Or are you willing to settle for what God is willing to give you? That's the difference here. Now let's take some time and look at Lot. Lot's in a very different position. He's the second. He's the underprivileged. Here he's given the choice. And he takes it. And there's nothing wrong with that, but I would suggest to you that the way that he goes about taking it also teaches us a lot about Lot. Look at what it says in verse 10. Lot lifted up his eyes and saw... How does Lot make his decision? By sight. He says, all right, let me see what the best is, and I'm going to take the best. Okay. It's like a four-year-old. When you say, here, you get to be the first one to choose a cookie. Which one do they choose? The biggest. Right? We had to come up with a formula in our house for donuts. Because donuts are not all equal in size, even though I would argue that many of them are equal in value. But kids vote donuts not based on their preferences or taste, but size. So if there's a maple bar in the box, it is 
the desirable, not just because of its, you know, tastiness, but because it's the biggest. There's just more donut for me if I take that one, right? In fact, this is such a significant thing that some genius parent came up with a way to make sure that kids share. And here's what it is. Put this one in your back pocket. Use it on your coworkers. One person cuts and the other selects. And it's great because it leads to fairness. Because suddenly the first kid is like, all right, I want to be as equal as possible. So no matter what, I get an equal portion. Right? But why does that work? It only works because there's some, you know, all ruling being who rules over their lives and will make sure there's consequences if they don't keep the rules. But Abraham's not worried about the rules here. Lot, though, he lifts up his eyes and he says, what looks best to me? Abraham is secure in whatever comes his way because he knows that God provides for him. But Lot chooses for himself. In fact, look at that language. It says, he looked with his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Look at verse 11. So Lot chose for himself. Abraham seeks peace for everyone. Lot chooses for himself. But we also discover here that Lot's vision is faulty. Look at the description that's given as he looks across the valley of Jordan. Look at what it says again in verse 10. He says that it was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord. He looks at this land and he goes, this is a new Eden. Okay. Let me tell you very clearly, it's not. And not just because Sodom and Gomorrah is in that, it's because the way to Eden has been closed. It's because now we live in the land of the curse. Okay. Effectively, Lot looks out and he sees through rose-tinted glasses and he sees a land that is perfect. He sees a return to the garden that doesn't require anyone else to save him, just Lot's choice. He sees paradise on earth. But as you've all learned, paradise on earth is like chasing rainbows. The closer you get to it, the further away the rainbow is. It's like chasing the horizon. And the horizon moves. And you go, all I need is this promotion, and then you get it. And you think, well, it wasn't this one, it must be the next promotion. You chase, and you chase, and you chase. The second thing that we see about Lot's vision that's faulty, first he says it's like the garden of the Lord, second it's like the land of Egypt. And Lot has first-hand knowledge, he was just in Egypt. And whereas Canaan has been suffering from this famine, Egypt's getting along just fine because they have the Nile, right? They're not as dependent upon rain because they have this river that takes care of all their needs. And so he looks at the Jordan and he goes, this is as good as Egypt. But the problem with that is we saw last week, Egypt should always, every time it's pronounced like Frau Blucher, right, in Young Frankenstein, with lightning and the whinnying of horses, it's not a good place. When Israel compares God's provision in the wilderness to the land of Egypt, they aren't seeing rightly. They say, We want to go back to the flesh pots where there was plenty of meat stored in the pantry, if you will. We want to go back to the garlic and leeks. And they're completely forgetting what? They would be going back to slavery, 
to being in chains, to being owned by masters, to being worked to the bone, to being genocidally persecuted. Lot shows the same lack of sense here. He looks out and he judges, if you will, with the world's values. And then there is the last one, which we can't actually see here with Lot's eyes, but we're given commentary by our narrator. In the direction of Zoar, this was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Now that does two things. One, it tells us the land may look pretty great now, but it's not going to in a few years. Okay? It's giving us a little bit of foreshadowing. But the second thing it does is it shows that he makes the decision based on one circumstance, one piece of evidence, and he ignores all the rest. You know, in the early years of us being a church, we moved a lot. In the first three years, we were in six different locations. And so I learned what it's like to weigh a new location. And here's what I learned. You never do it well. Because what happens when you're looking for a new spot is all you see is how it lacks the cons of the old spot. And you go, oh, this will fix this problem. And we'll no longer have to deal with this. But what don't you see? You don't see the uniquely custom fit problems that it comes with. He doesn't see Sodom and Gomorrah. He doesn't see it for what it is. But here's how Lot's life is going to play out. As it says at the end of the chapter, um, look at what it says in verse, verse 12, Abraham settled in the land of Canaan while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. Next time we find him, he's not living in the area of Sodom. He's moved into the city. That's why he gets captured and taken away in the next chapter because he's one of the Sodomites. He lives there, and so when this war happens, he's right in the middle of it. And then by the time Sodom and Gomorrah is destroyed, we find him sitting in the gates of the city, which is not just a place you hang out like the mall courtyard. Okay? It's a position of leadership. He works up the ranks in the city. He becomes part and parcel of the city. And because of that, because of his choices that he makes here, because he looked up and chose for himself, he loses everything. And I mean literally everything. By the time we get to the end of Lot's story, he's living in a cave because Sodom and everything he owns has been destroyed. His wife has been turned to a pillar of salt and his daughters get him drunk to impregnate him. But it begins here. Now, here's the thing. I don't think Lot saw all these things, and I don't think that's Lot's fault. But he settled for his own wisdom. He made his own choice. How many movies have we made as Americans that are basically summed up in the phrase, be careful what you wish for? How many movies... Does the person ask for one thing? It's Christmas, so I might as well evoke home alone. Right? Choosing for yourself, taking your portion, staking your claim, is not just built on an idea that you deserve it. It's built on an idea that you know what's best for you. But we are very bad at measuring those things because we are in the midst 
because we just see what's around us. We don't see what's around the next corner. We don't see the implications and the complications of what's coming. And so it's not just here that Abraham is good in his choice versus Lot who makes a bad choice. Abraham is wise. He's wise to let God make the decision. He's wise to let God make the call. And here, Lot is the epitome of foolishness because he chooses for himself. I think we find ourselves often in similar circumstances. I think what Abraham and Lot go through here might be different in the setting because none of you own herds and herds of livestock, but it's the exact same in the circumstances. Scarcity, conflict with other people, rights, privileges, authority, power playing out, feeling the need to provide and take care for yourself, feeling the need to stake a claim in a homestead, trying to eke out your little corner. But if we are those who, according to the book of Hebrews, are like Abraham, who are looking for a city with solid foundations whose builder and maker is God, if God's promises and his character, and his provision, and his faithfulness, and his wisdom, should I go on, and his goodness. If that enters into our decision-making, it changes the way we make decisions. It changes us from people who have to put ourselves first so we can survive to those who can be generous. It changes us from a scarcity mentality to a lots of options mentality. It changes us from valuing uh, resources to relationships. It changes us from needing to put ourselves first and be blessed and get the blessing and achieve the blessing than be a blessing. And you can read that and you can go, I don't know about any of that. But as the story continues, the curtain is pulled back and we see the validity, the value, the wisdom, the goodness of Abraham's decision, because what happens next? Lot travels out. Abraham takes the leftovers. And God says, no, 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 no. Look at verse 14. The Lord said to Abraham after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward, for all the land that you see I will give to you and to your offspring forever. Lot lifted up his eyes. God told Abraham to lift his eyes. Lot looked with his own eyes. God says, look around you, Abraham. Everything that you see, I will give you. Lot chose for himself. And here God says, here's what I've chosen for you, Abraham. He says, look in every direction. Everything you can see, it's all yours. Now remember, we have to understand that with an asterisk. Because the only thing Abraham will ever own in the land of promise is a grave for him and his wife. That's it. He has to look with the eyes of faith. He has to look beyond things. He has to look 
with God as part of the equation. But then look, he's also given a command in verse 17. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abraham moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. For the rest of Abraham's days, this land of promise, not land of property, hasn't been given to it yet, but this land of promise begins uh, to be this place that he walks the length of and the breadth of. He explores and he enjoys and he inhabits and he lives in. Just because these blessings are future doesn't mean that there's no enjoyment of them in the present. And that's true of the Beatitudes. Jesus isn't saying, blessed are those who mourn now, for they will be comforted. There's a comfort in knowing you will be comforted. There's a fulfillment now in your hunger and thirst for righteousness. Jesus is coming in the kingdom, but he has already come. The kingdom may not yet be consummated, fulfilled, completed, but it has been inaugurated. There are blessings for us now, and we are called, like Abraham, to walk and enjoy them. Not just to sit and wait. Okay? Abraham here doesn't just, you know, waiting on the side of a road because his car broke down. A truck pulls up and he says, hey, you want to ride? And he goes, no, that's okay. God will get me to Vegas or wherever he's going. Right? He's not denying the things that are right in front of him. In fact, he walks them. He lives in them. He builds altars in them. He worships them. He knows them. He loves them. He enjoys them. Listen to these words of Paul from the New Testament. Here Paul is also talking about blessings, the way that we are blessed. This is what he says in Ephesians chapter 1, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has, past tense, blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Okay. Will we be blessed in Christ or are we blessed in Christ? We are. Even though those blessings are in the heavenly places, Paul goes on to say, we are in Christ in the heavenlies now. We will not be able to plumb the depths of them, but we can begin to enjoy them now. And not only that, is it some blessings? No, he has given us every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. It's its, it's its whole own version of the promised land. There's a length and a breadth and a width and a depth to the God, things that God has for you now. And again, they aren't for the taking. The things that we need in life, the things that we desire in life, the things that we long for in life, the choice before us today as it is every day is to try and take them or to make them, or to fight for them, or to struggle for them, or to earn them, or to accept them as a gift, to receive them. Now, it's one thing, it's one thing if you're not a Christian this morning, to not know that these abundant blessings are there to be enjoyed. 
It's one thing if you're not a Christian to not know that God would like to take care of you, provide for you, give you everything you need. But what a horrible thing when we as Christians forget that God is providing. When those provisions are made, when those plans are available, where God has the counsel that we need in our decisions, when he has a portion to give us, and we go, I'll choose for myself on this one. I'll take this one. God, thank you that you've given me eternal life. Now I'm going to try and make life for myself on earth. The more we meditate on what God has given us, the more we enjoy and, like I said, walk the breadth of the land of promise, the more it loosens our grip on making our own choices, on making our own way, on choosing for ourselves, the more it changes us from longing for the things that we cannot see and yet know are real and have tasted because we've tasted and seen that the Lord is good, the more we value the things we cannot see than the things we can see. The more we trust the things we cannot see than the things we can see. And no surprise, that makes us more generous. It makes us seek peace. It makes us forgive. It makes us stalwart in storms and gentle in conflict. It makes us pilgrims, right? Who live in the land in a way where we know this isn't our final destination. It makes us children of our father Abraham who walk in faith and trust God's portion instead of trying to take our own. Let's pray. Father, I want to be real practical in my prayer this morning, Lord. I trust that right now in this room, there are choices. There are alternatives being presented. There are challenges and there are conflicts that need to be resolved. And that means there is the temptation to be the fixer, to, to demand our rights, to fight, to flex our muscles. But I pray, God, that you would just rip the veil right off, that we would be able to see things as they truly are, and that includes not just that this world is fallen and broken and cannot bring us what we think we desire, but also that you are good and faithful. that you are the father of life, father of lights that all good gifts come from. That you are the one who provides for the birds. That you have given us great and precious promises. How then should we live? I pray that we'd live a life of wisdom and a life of faith. I pray that we would live a blessed life, not as the world defines it, not as we're tempted to believe it is, Lord, but the blessing that comes from being faith-filled recipients 
of the gifts of God. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.